Well, in 1980, there was a man, Harry R. Truman. No, not the president. Harry R. Truman is a man who had, who had gone to basically almost the base of Mount St. Helens, to Spirit Lake, who had built a lodge with his own hands. I think rebuilt it two times after it was destroyed. Who had lived there with his wife for 40 years. So much attachment to that place that he said it was like parts of his own body. Well, a lot of you know what happened in 1980 with Mount St. Helens. Mount St. Helens, the volcano erupted, not in a normal way. The, the side of the mountain exploded. The force of nuclear bomb, atomic bomb, and great destruction happened. But before that happened, there were signs. There were witnesses to the danger. There were scientists who were saying, this mountain is going to blow. All the instruments that they were using to, to watch the mountain and see its changes were, were indicating something major is about to happen. And Harry R. Truman had witnesses, had people come to him and say, you need to get out of here. You're in great danger. And he refused to leave. Everything familiar to him was there. He had buried his wife there. His 16 cats were there. He couldn't think of leaving all that was familiar to him. But we find out later from his daughter that what he was telling her was, no big deal. Been through it before. If this mountain goes and, and, and if the eruption happens, see, he's thinking it's just going to erupt like a normal volcano. He said, I'll have time to get out. The news helicopters or somebody will come get me. It'll be okay. But he was enjoying the celebrity because he was the guy that was going to face down the mountain. He was not going to leave. And it was a Sunday morning when you've seen the pictures. That mountain exploded exactly in his direction and buried Harry and his 16 cats under hundreds of feet of mud and debris. They sing songs about him like his, it was a good thing. His spirit. He refused to leave. He would not receive deliverance because he would not leave the things that were familiar to him. He rejected being saved from the danger of that mountain. He rejected testimony of those who knew and said it was coming. He would not be delivered. And he went down with the mountain. Harry's sort of a good illustration of what's been going on since the garden. Mankind rejecting God's gracious rule. Mankind rejecting His grace. Mankind going His own way. Staying with what's familiar. There's a way that seems right to a man. At the end thereof is death. If the way is not God's way, the end is death. 
And what we're seeing in Acts chapter 7 is Stephen answering the objections of the Jewish authorities and the accusations that they're bringing against him like they brought against others, like they brought against Jesus when, when he was put on the cross. So Stephen, I'm guessing that he was hoping that the Lord was at work through his message, that the Lord would bring the leaders to repentance. But he never got to finish the message. Because as soon as he started applying it, he was martyred. But we're looking at the section today. After coming through all of the other people we've seen in Acts. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and now Moses. By the way, help you read your Bible better. When you read the Old Testament and you see the heroes, that's not you. We want... We be like David, be like my praise God he sent a deliverer, and that's what those men picture. We are we are the Israelites, we are the brothers who are arguing, we are the ones who rejected, but God has come into our lives with his grace. But we're down to Moses, we're in section two, we're going to look at thirty five to forty three uh quickly this morning and see. Just there's a picture here, and Stephen has a purpose here, and he's he's given a condensed version of Moses' life, and what he's preaching, and what we've seen already is showing, but especially this text. Although God has given a full and free redemption, apart from grace, people respond with rebellion. Although God has given a full and free redemption. Apart from grace, people respond with rebellion. But look first at God's gift of redemption in 35 to 38. God called, provided a leader, deliverer to bring His people out of slavery in Egypt. He provided a leader. He provided a deliverer. You know why? The people couldn't deliver themselves. They were in bondage under Pharaoh in harsh slavery. Now, Pharaoh didn't know he was training their hands for war and making them tough to endure what was ahead of them. That he couldn't win and that God was going to deliver his people. And God had raised him up for that very purpose that he might be glorified and triumph over all of Egypt's gods. But God had provided a leader, a deliverer in Moses. And he says in verse 35, and we've seen before, I'll refer you back to last week's sermon. But it says, this Moses, the one we've already been talking about, whom they rejected. This was his first attempt when he was 40 years old. And he was trying to step between brothers that were arguing. And it says, the, the, the two Israelites were fighting. One was abusing another. And Moses, who had already killed the Egyptian for attacking his people, tries to step between his brothers and reconcile them. And the man who was abusing the other said this to him. We've already seen this in Acts chapter 7. Who made you a ruler and a judge? In other words, get out of here. Leave me alone. And he said, are you going to kill me like you killed the Egyptian? But he rejected Moses' intercession and would not hear Moses' teaching. But he says... This Moses, they rejected. And that is the theme of this talk. That, that, that Israel in mass, by and large, except for the remnant, has always rejected God's rule. Has always rejected God's grace. And basically Stephen's point, which he will apply it later, is that you are no different. They didn't like that. This man, Moses, God sent as both ruler and redeemer. 
by the hand of the angel, the angel of the Lord, the power of the Lord. Look at this, how this condenses everything. This man, God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him at the bush. So he's, he's ruler and redeemer. He's, he's, he's Lord and Savior. He's a picture of Jesus in that. You know, ultimately we know that true redemption, full redemption, deliverance from sin, we'll talk about that later, comes in Jesus. Moses is a picture of Jesus. And he has come to deliver his people who can't deliver themselves. But he has the right power. And secondly, God supported him with his power. Look at this. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. Forty years. Why that? Look at it. He led them out in God's power, performing wonders and signs in Egypt. Think about that. He showed His power over all of Israel's gods through the plagues that were wrought upon Egypt. God sent Moses to tell Pharaoh, let my people go. You know what Pharaoh said? No. And sometimes he would say yes, and then he would backtrack on that. And there's this, this interplay going on. But... Through Pharaoh's refusal and through the plagues that came, those are not just random. God is showing His authority and power over everything they worshipped as God. And He's used Moses. And through Moses, don't, don't miss it, it's God's power doing the signs through His chosen servant. He led them out performing one signs in Egypt. Now look at this. And at the Red Sea. Now, Imagine that you are you have been led out and Moses delivered the people were delivered out of Egypt through the 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 plagues that came culminating with the death of the firstborn and Israel was protected through sacrifice blood placed on the door a little more about that later but then they've come out of Egypt and Moses is taking them through the wilderness and they come to a sea None of them can walk on water. Over the hill comes the Egyptian army. So they all respond in faith and say, oh, well, whatever happens, God's going to deliver us. Beep, yank, no. They start attacking Moses and he basically says, shut up and stand still. And God split that sea. And it was a real sea. And the water stood up as a wall. And Israel passed through on the floor of that sea as on dry ground. And you might hear somebody say, well, no, it was the Sea of Reeds and it was really only six inches deep or whatever. And they just, well, that's a bigger miracle anyway because you know why the whole Egyptian army would drown in six inches of water if that's true. (laughs) Can't get away from God's miraculous working even though we try. He split the sea and He took them through and He drowned the whole Egyptian army. Now Moses didn't do that. Moses was God's mediator of the Old Covenant through whom He was working to perform His signs and miracles to deliver His people from physical, real slavery in Egypt. And look, it says, it just goes over this. Their failure is not even mentioned. It says, and in the wilderness for 40 years. You know why in the wilderness for 40 years? Because when the spies spied out the land and came back, Israel responded with unbelief. Want to go back to Egypt. And so, 
God's judgment was that generation who rejected Him would wander in the wilderness until they all died and their children would go into the promised land. But God was faithful to take care of them through the 40 years of, of wandering. Provide things like manna, bread from heaven. Oh, what a beautiful picture of Christ, right? But Moses, uh, Stephen is just condensing the story of Moses. And you're probably thankful because the sermon would be way too long if he were not. This is the one who was with them and through whom God delivered them for 40 years. And we know eventually takes them into the land through Joshua. In verse 37, I'm going to come back to this later, but that talks about the prophet. That's in Deuteronomy 18. It talks about the prophet who is Jesus, who Peter's already preached about. But I'm going to save that and come back to that. But God had supported Moses with His power. He had led His people out through signs and wonders. The Passover had been instituted. The people were protected. The firstborn of Egypt were, were, were slain. People out, delivered through the Red Sea. And on we go. And then it says this in verse 39. Our fathers refused to obey Him. That's what they always did. Verse 38. This is the one who was, was in the congregation in the wilderness, congregation, Greek word ecclesia, not this sermon. Anyway, it just means assembly or, or I shouldn't even say that. <laughs> Create this distraction for you. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai with our fathers. And it says this, and he received living oracles. So God had provided a leader and called him. He'd supported him with his power. And now graciously through that leader, he gives Israel his word. He gives them his word. Verse 38, living oracles. Oracles, that word means sayings of God, right? I mean, it was used outside of Israel, that Greek word anyway, sayings of a God. But this living word, these living sayings, God had given them His very word through Moses and the commandments that we read and then the application of those commandments to to Old Testament Israel. But God gave them His word. Living oracles. Why did He do that? Why did He give them His Word? Well, for His glory and all of this. But so that His people would know Him and be protected and preserved. God's, God's Word, God's law sets the proper boundaries in our life. And we need boundaries. Because to break His law is sin. And sin brings condemnation. God's law tells us who God is. It tells us what righteousness is. By implication, it tells us what sin is. So, through God's law, we know what pleases Him, what righteousness is, the way that we should walk in order to walk and live in His blessing. Now, we know they rejected all of that and God's up to something bigger and we'll talk about that in a minute. But think about this. How do you respond to God's Word? To God's commandments for you? Do you trust Him because of His grace in Christ ascending and sacrificing His Son for you such that you want to know His Word and live by His Word? Now sure, we're in the new covenant under Christ, but nothing's happened in the history of redemption that takes away God's righteous commands. Do you trust Him and therefore trust His Word and see it as a proper hedge and a boundary and seek to walk in it? Think about this. The law provides freedom 
and safety so that Israel could have stayed in the land had they kept the law which they promised to do. But the law is a fence. It's a hedge. It's a protection. I mean, think about my dog. Those of you who know me know I'm a dog person and really love animals and my dog has it made and she ever left my house, her lifestyle would definitely go down. In the back, we have a fence. And in that fence, Kyra has great freedom. I mean, when we lived at the condo, I had to keep her on a tie and I had to be her freedom and walk her everywhere she went. There's a lot of funny stories that happened during that time about her dragging me around and stuff. But anyway, but in this house, we have a fence and so she has great freedom and can enjoy that. She can run wherever she wants to within that boundary. And enjoy that backyard and enjoy that freedom. But it's also her protection. She doesn't know this. But that fence is her protection. Because if she strays outside of that fence, like I said, her at least her lifestyle is going to go down, but she may be killed, harmed, hurt. And, and she's in that fence because she's at home and she's where she's loved and provided for. And think of God's commandments that way. That He, knowing more than you do, has put proper boundaries that you can walk in and have freedom, be protected. But see, you only see it that way if you trust Him. And you can stray outside of God's commandments if you want to. But you're in peril when you do, always. Because His Word is right. His commandments are righteous. They are for His glory, yes, but they are for our good. And when we think we know better, we are always wrong. Always. Remember, there's a way that seems right to man, but the end thereof is death. God is very patient with us. Right? But His commandments are not given to quench our fun and to to mess us up and to bring us into these just restrictions that we shouldn't have. They're, They're given to us that we might know and love Him and live for Him. Know what the boundaries are so that we aren't placing ourselves in danger, and joyfully seek at least to walk in them because of His grace. We'll talk more about that in a minute. But His law was given to Israel that they might have freedom and a land and flourish in that land and love and worship God and be protected and preserved in that land, but they, they wouldn't hear it. They wouldn't hear it. So look at, secondly, Israel's response of rebellion. Look at verse 39. This is going to get uh, Stephen in trouble. Very soon. But he says, Our fathers refused to obey him, Moses, and through Moses, God, right? But thrust him aside and in their hearts returned to Egypt. They thrust him aside. Think about when Moses was confronting the Israelite who was harming the other, and, and the guy basically said, Who made you ruler and judge? I'm not, somebody's trying to get in front of you and stop you from doing something stupid, but you think that something stupid is something good, so you say, Leave me alone. I'm going that way. They refused to obey. They thrust Him aside. And in thrusting Moses aside, guess who they were thrusting aside? God. They refused to obey Him. Look at this. And in their hearts, they turned to Egypt. That, that's not primarily talking about location. Primarily, it's talking about religion. And they see everything in a way that they forget all the hard slavery and they just remember the meat pots and things like that. But they don't like this new 
quote, new religion. They want to go back to a more visible, controllable form of religion. So they want to go back to Egypt's way. Egypt's idolatry. And the proof of that is the next verse. Look at what it says. They refused to obey Him, verse 39, but thrust Him aside in their hearts, returned to Egypt. Now look at what they said. Saying to Aaron, Make us gods. Make for us gods who will go before us. That's such a silly thing to say, isn't it? Make us a god who will go before us. Aaron, you make us a god who will go before us and protect us and provide... What do you mean? One that we can control. One that won't mess with my stuff. Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we we do not know what has become of him. Partially you understand that because Moses had been on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. And we are so impatient, aren't we? And they had counted him off. And they really didn't like the way he was doing things anyway. So they said, okay, okay, cool. He's gone. We can kind of go back to doing things the way we're comfortable. We can return to what is comfortable. We don't have to leave everything behind. And so they tell Aaron to make him a god. And look at this in verse 41. And they made a calf in those days and offered sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the work of their hands. You can read about that in Exodus 32. And there's some humor in that after Moses confronts Aaron. But notice what they did. They made their own God through Aaron. And it says, it doesn't really point out Aaron's sin explicitly here. It says they made a God, a calf in those days. You know what Aaron told Moses? He said he got gold from all the people and threw it in the fire and out came this calf. And you can see Moses going, Moses grounded up, threw it in the water, and made them drink it. But they made their own God. And they're dancing before the work of their hands. You know what they named that calf? The Lord. They used the covenant name of God, Yahweh. Okay, this is Yahweh who has brought us out of the land of Egypt. This is our God. And he will go with us. A dumb calf. Yeah, he won't tell us what to do. We can offer a few things at his feet and kind of we'll have life the way we want it. And before we laugh at them, we do that. We make God into an idol to serve our purposes. We do it mentally. We don't, very few of us, I haven't been to any of your houses where there was this gold statue that you bow down to in the mornings. But why do you think you need to know the truth about God? Because all of our heads are filled with idolatry and false ideas about God that we need to be set free from. We might, we live for things other than God. First commandment. We construct our own gods. Have you ever heard anybody do something like this? My God is a God of love. He would never judge anyone. Your God is a false God. He's an idol then. Because that's not how the Word reveals God. I mean, we have thousands of ways that we do that that are just as silly or more silly. But they made a calf and they're dancing around calling it the Lord and rejoicing. And Moses comes down well, God sends him down, breaks the tablets and rebukes them. And Stephen, I mean, 
not Stephen. Aaron tells his silly little story about how the calf was miraculously formed and on they go. They were idolatrous people. They were a people who rejected God, rejected His Word, rejected His mediator, really wanted to go their own way. They wanted some religion. They missed that part. But they didn't want the truth. They didn't want the truth of God. And here's some of the scariest language you'll ever read in the Bible. In verse 42, God gave them over. They had descended into idolatry. They rejected God. And God gave them over. Look what it says here. Eventually, this is, again, this is compression. There's a lot of history that happens. And we know they go into the land through Joshua. And they go into the land and don't rout out all of the people that are there. And so they adopt their idolatries and so badly that they followed a God who they would sacrifice their children to in fire. Over a flame, they would lay their babies into that God's hand and cook them so life would go well for them. You want to know why they were cast out of the land? But they descended into idolatry. And look at this in verse 42, sort of a summary thing. But God turned away, and these are the scary words, gave them over. Gave them over to worship the host of heaven as it is written in the book of the prophets. Gave them over. You do not want to be given over. You want to be restrained and guided by God's Word. Saved by His grace. Again, I promise you, there's gospel coming. But this is what happened. He gave them over to worship the host of heaven as it is written in the book of the prophets. And all the minor prophets in the, in the Jewish canon were in one book. It's, didn't have a bunch of different, they were all in one, one book. But it says, Did you bring me slain beasts and sacrifices during the forty years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? I expected answer, no. You brought sacrifices, but not to me. Because look what he says. You took up the tent of Moloch, the, the star of your God refined, and the images that you made to worship. And I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. God gave them over to their own desires. Listen, if your desires are counter to the Word of God and God gives you over to your desires, that's not good news. Because it's headed for judgment. And that's what God is saying. I will send you into exile. Romans 1, 22-25, speaking of giving over, it says this about those who reject the knowledge of God like the Israelites had done. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to dishonoring their bodies among themselves, because they, listen, why? Because the same thing Israel did. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is forever blessed. And it goes on to, to walk through in Romans chapter 1, men descending into sin, men, men and women descending into sin and, and exchanging the natural use for relations with one another and ending in judgment in the end of the chapter, establishing the guilt of the Gentiles. But it's, they rejected the knowledge of God, pursued idolatry, and God gave them over to their own way. And it's not... A good thing. But go read your, your Old Testament. You'll see what happens is the Israel comes into the land. They're, they're eventually unified. There's one kingdom under David. Solomon takes the throne, does some dumb stuff. The Israel split. 
northern kingdom, southern kingdom. I'm condensing a lot, I have to. The northern kingdom, because of their idolatry and rejection of God, they never had a good king. They, they changed God's worship, all sorts of things. They go into exile around 722 B.C. to Assyria. Well, Babylon defeats Assyria. And in 586, the southern kingdom, who had a few good kings, but in general did the same thing, rejected God, they go into exile. They're removed from the land. And Nebuchadnezzar and go into exile in 586 or so to, to Babylon. So God's promised judgment had come true. Stephen has developed the theme of rejection of God and rejection of His truth. He's going to talk about the temple and then make application and he's going to be martyred. But we're going to stop right here this morning. And I want to go back to verse 37. I told you gospel was coming. Look at this. In verse 37... This, this Moses, Deuteronomy 18, it says this, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. That's from Deuteronomy 18, 15. Peter's already preached about that in Acts in chapter 3. We talked about that a little bit. That's pointing forward to Jesus, the prophet who was to come. All the kings in the Old Testament picture the king who will come, Jesus. All the prophets picture the prophet to come, Jesus. All the priests picture the priest to come, Jesus. Jesus is our prophet, priest, and king who rules us for His glory and our good, who tells us the truth about us and ourselves and salvation as our prophet, and who has sacrificed Himself as the Lamb of God to pay for our sins and He is seated. But the prophet has come. The prophet like Moses. Look at what Moses is saying in verse 37. There's one coming and from our perspective he has come. Moses was a type and a picture and Christ has come. He's the true and greater leader who came to bring his people out of bondage. He's supported by God's miracles and you know all of the miracles that happened in his life culminating with his resurrection. The greatest proof. He is the true and greater Passover Lamb who died to pay the penalty for our sins. And He brought to us the completion of God's law or God's Word so we can understand all of the Old Testament or Old Covenant in light of Christ and who He is and how He has come to save us. And we have, the, of course, graciously, the, the New Testament and the great explanation of the Gospel that we find there that we might be saved by God's grace. Jesus brought about the true exodus. The exodus pictured Jesus. Watch this in, in Luke. I don't have time to develop it. But Luke 9, 31, 30 and 31. And behold, this is on the Mount of Transfiguration. Right? When Jesus was transfigured. It says, And behold, two men were talking with Him, Jesus, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of His departure, which He was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. You know what that word for departure is? The Greek word for exodus. The exodus He was about to accomplish. He was about to lead His people out from bondage in sin through His sacrifice of Himself. Everything that the Old Testament, Old Covenant pictured is found in Christ in reality. He is the Passover Lamb. He leads the true exodus, which is an exodus out of bondage in sin. He is the one like Moses that Moses pictured who is the true and greater leader supported by God's power and brings the completion of God's Word. He is the Savior of the world who saves His people. And it's all by grace. 
You don't have a part to play in that you work for your salvation because Christ has achieved it all. His righteous life where He kept the law in thought, word, and deed is imputed or credited to those who trust in Him. Your record, if you're trusting in Jesus, your record before God is perfect obedience to the law in thought, word, and deed. Some of y'all looking at me like I'm crazy. Read Romans. If you're trusting in Jesus, all of your sin has been washed away in His sacrifice. Before God, there's no record of it. Because Christ paid the penalty, satisfied justice. He is our Passover Lamb. His blood has been applied. We have been set free. It's all by grace. In other words, you can't do anything to make yourself more acceptable to God. God's not, He didn't save you because you were good. And He's not keeping you saved before, because you're good. He saves you on the basis of His Son. He justifies you on that basis. He sanctifies you on that basis. He will glorify. He will finish the work. And yes, He works in us to love Him back and to have a new heart that loves Him and His Word and wants to walk with Him. But none of that gains us merit with God. You can read your Bible till the cows come home and it won't make you more acceptable to God. You can give this church $10 million and you won't have any more righteousness before God. Now, if you want to do that, that's okay. But don't, <laughs> just don't depend on it to atone for your sin. You see what I'm saying? It's all by grace. Look at this. I'll show you what God says about Romans, about Jewish, about Israel. I encourage you to read the totality of Romans 11 because I don't have time to do that this morning. But he shows God's plan and, and what is true and God's remnant and through the unbelief of the Jews grafting into the Gentiles to the same promises and he will complete that work. Read Romans 11. But it's all by grace. Look at this. Romans 11, 1 to 8. I ask then, has God rejected His people? Speaking of the Jews, Paul's talking about and continuing from Romans 9. By no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected His people whom He foreknew. Notice it's people that He foreknows, not things, not acts. Foreknew, no, in the Bible is when Adam uh, knew his wife. That, that's an intimacy term. That's where children come from. If you want to explain that more to your kids, I'll let you do that. To foreknow is to forelove, is to set His love on beforehand. God has not rejected His people whom He foreknew. Do, do you not know what the Scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left. How many times do we do that? And they seek my life. But what was God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. He had kept a remnant. There was a remnant even in Old Testament Israel. Even though the bulk of them were rejecting God's, there was always a remnant by God's grace. Look at what it says. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant. The ones that are good enough. Wait, is my Bible messed up? Chosen by grace. Same thing as saying foreknew. Mystery. Sovereignty. God's work in His people. 
there is at this time when Paul was writing, and he's speaking here of the Jewish people, there was a remnant back then and there's a remnant now. And God, the ones that didn't believe were were cut out of the olive tree and the Gentiles who believe by God's grace are grafted in. But notice it's a remnant chosen by grace. Don't be afraid of God's sovereignty. If you, that's, you need to know sovereignty to be at peace in this world. Not a maverick molecule. God is in control. A lot of mystery to it. Can't figure it out. But it's a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would... Notice there's no mixing of works and grace so that I can be accepted. It's all grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking in mass. But the elect obtained it. The rest were hardened. Please go read the rest of Romans 11 and you'll see where he's going with that argument. But it's all by grace. Just like it was for the remnant in Israel, it is for the Gentiles who come to faith in God's love and grace and sovereignty. He has sent His Son to save a people and Jesus has fully accomplished our salvation. He didn't leave any of it up to you. You say, but I trusted Him. Right. You cannot be saved without trusting Jesus. But you would not have trusted Him if He would not at work in your life. You would have continued to reject Him. He has set you free. You didn't set yourself free. And He set you free to love and serve Him. Just like He gave His Word to the Old Testament people of Israel, He's given His Word to us that tells us the truth about our salvation. If you have any questions about any of this, because I know I'm skipping over a lot of stuff, let me know. But last thing, He set, he set us free to love and serve Him. He gave us His Word to lead us and guide us and protect us so that we would love and serve Him because of His grace in our lives. Look at 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15. So many people want Jesus as a Savior, but they don't want Him as a ruler. So many people want to be forgiven of their sins and go to heaven and not go to hell, but they don't want Jesus messing with their life now. That is not biblical salvation. And we have visitors here this morning and I love you enough to tell you the truth. Christ is Lord. He is King. He is Savior. What other Savior would you want that would take hell for you and sacrifice Himself for you? Look at 2 Corinthians 5, 14-15. For the love of Christ controls us. Praise God. His love for us, I think. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, Therefore, all have died. And He died for all. Look at this. That those who live, those who by His grace live, spiritually live, really live, who are trusting in Him, who are receiving Him as their Savior, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who for their sake died and was raised. And living for yourself there just means living for your own selfish ways that contradict His Word and His way. Praise God when our desires and His Word line up, right? Those who live might no longer reject Him, but love and live for Him. That's God's purpose. And all of His ways are right, and His commands are true and righteous and good and holy. And for our good, He set us free. That we might love and serve Him. So I just want... You see what Stephen's doing here? How he's showing them Israel has always rejected God. You know, we know there's a remnant, but in in general, in mass, 
Israel has always rejected God. Stephen, what he calls his, our fathers, have refused to obey Him, thrust Him aside, returned to idolatry, rejected God, God in His ways. And he will, again, apply that, and that what will be his martyring. But within the context of this, we see Moses and his hard job of being the mediator of the Old Covenant and walking with that people uh, through all of that trouble. And we see how it pictures Jesus, verse 37, the prophet who was to come, who would truly come and lead the true exodus by living for God and fulfilling His law, by dying to pay for our sin, being the Passover Lamb Himself, that He might set us free through faith, set us free from bondage in sin to a true life of love and joy and living for Jesus. I'm asking you this morning, has sin led you out? Has sin led you out? Sin has led you into bondage. Has Jesus led you out on the true exodus from sin and condemnation? See, kids, you know the simplest verse in the Bible. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoso believes in Him might not perish but have everlasting life. Are you believing in Jesus? Are you trusting in Jesus? Have you received Jesus as your Savior? That's John 1, by the way. To those who received Him, He gave the right to become the children of God. Is your hope in Jesus for salvation? Has God brought you to the place? Now, just be honest with yourself. You don't have to say it out loud. Where you have seen your sin and the condemnation that you deserve and it has caused you to tremble and turn to His Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. You cried out for mercy because of your sin and knowing you deserve judgment and you put your trust in Jesus and your hope is in Him. I'm not asking you if you ever doubt or if you ever struggle or have trouble in this life because welcome to the club. But press to the wall. Push to the end. You know, our faith is stronger some days than others. But is your hope in Jesus and Jesus alone for acceptance with God? For forgiveness of sins? For righteousness as a gift? Are you confident that you, if you lay your head on your pillow this afternoon to take a Sunday nap and you never open your eyes, but to absent, be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. It's not because of your works and you being good enough or you making yourself clean. If, it's, if you will be saved, it's because you have received Jesus and Jesus alone. Or are you rejecting Him, stiff-arming Him, pushing Him out of the way for your own agenda? That will be the wrong decision if that is true. That will end up, as the verse said, there's a way that seems right to man, but the end thereof is death. I hope that you are fully rested in His grace and in His love and seeing that He is the Redeemer who has come to save us and gives us salvation as a free gift through faith in Him. Trust Jesus. Rest in Jesus. Hope in Jesus for a full and a free redemption. He died for our sins according to the Scripture. He was buried and He was raised the third day, proving it's all true. Don't be like Harry R. Truman and so many in Israel and the Jews in Jesus' day and the ones to whom Stephen is speaking. Don't reject God and rebel against His Word and shove Jesus aside. But repent of your sins and trust in the one Savior who is Jesus. 
And you will find in Him forgiveness. Righteousness as a gift. The power of the Holy Spirit for new life. And on your daily walk, as you don't follow Him perfectly, you have a throne of grace to run to and to receive grace and mercy and find help in your time of need. And to know then, if you're trusting in Christ, that as you confess your sins, you are forgiven and cleansed and are back on the right path. See, it's not a perfect faith, but it is a true faith. And true faith is hoping in Jesus alone, not shoving Him aside, but embracing Him as your Savior and the only one who can save your soul. Let's pray.